0: Welcome to LeapCast. I'm your host, Dr. George James. LEAP stands for leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. And I'm on a journey to connect with high achievers and highlight their unexamined human moments. Tune in to learn how these high-achieving LEAP individuals were able to reach their greatest potential, face their most difficult challenges, and embrace the human moments that helped them along the way. If you want to get the episode highlights directly in your email, then head to Theleapcasts.com right now to subscribe. Welcome to Leapcast, where we talk to leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. I'm your host, Dr. George James, and I'm excited to bring on another amazing person that I've known that's been inspirational for me and has opened up so many doors for me, Travian Shorters. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? Oh, man,
1: I'm great. Obviously, it's a, it's a big pleasure. I'm super excited to be here with you, George.
0: Well, one of the ways that I like to start is what we call our leap story. And what that is, is just kind of going back, maybe early days. What were some of those formative things for you, things that defined you? Maybe, you know, growing up, siblings, household, where you grew up. So if we can kind of just go back to some of those early times. So we learn a little mm-hmm. bit about that part of your story.
1: Start yeah, the story. I think my story starts with uh, Kenneth and Irma Lee Hutchins, who were my grandparents. Grandma, Irma Lee was from. Some place in Louisiana, uh, we don't know <laughs> you know and and Grandpa was from a place outside of Odessa, Texas, which I don't know how big Odessa is, but they were some place outside of Odessa, you know, yes. so just good folk, Grandma had been a Christian woman since you know water was invented, so everybody you know she's just always been that way. She converted Grandpa when he was a twenty something chasing after her, apparently <laughs> 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 the only way he could get her is if he you know, me,
0: right, right
1: right, right. <laughs> If you wanted to spend time with her, you had to love Jesus first. So you know, <laughs> but yeah, those, those you know they helped raise me. My mom uh, had me when she was young. That's the household I grew up in. Very loving household. The neighborhood I grew up in was kind of dangerous and and just you know wild. But uh, but my place, you know, my home, my household was a safe place and a loving place. So uh, so that's where I'm from. And turn, I don't know if that's much of a leap story. I guess the leap is when I was nine, I think somewhere in there, I was tested to have a very high IQ. So they started putting me in, you know, these advanced programs. And then I got my first scholarship when I was 10. And I got my next real scholarship when I was 14, going on 15, went to a private boarding school, (laughs) lived on campus for the first time, you know, when I was 15. So I I think, you know, that definitely changed things for me. Uh, And then the other sort of that made me different was I was a tech nerd, man. I was, I've been building computers and hacking computers and cracking stuff since the PC was invented literally, you know? So,
0: you know, I've heard you say, show some stuff. I haven't heard that part. And so I appreciate that. I want to get to that. One of the things I've heard you mention when you've talked about your upbringing is which you have used is this dynamic around strength and love, power and love.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I'm curious of how did your grandparents' family shape that part of you?
1: Yeah, you know, so, you know, I'm Black, I identify as Black, right? In the U.S., you know, Black comes with a lot of stigma, like, people just attack it on, on GP, like, no matter which Black you are, you know, it's funny when you see Black for someone, well, I'm really from this place, I'm really, you know, I'm really from the islands, I'm really African. I'm like, but don't nobody know that, like, don't, I don't know you, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. They just they see what they see. Right. When they do something crazy whack to you, it'll be like, well, he wasn't really black. He was something Stop that. But anyway, so because I was raised by these Southern Negroes, the idea, they were taught the love doctrine as a, like their form of Christianity stemmed from this idea that God requires us to love each other the way that God loves us. So that's the way they approached everything. And they didn't they didn't particularly care about your skin color. Like that wasn't a, a thing, but they also loved being black. So in a space where it was assumed, you know, they just, and what I mean by that is um, they didn't have to tell anybody. They didn't have to, like, you know, it wasn't about, like, showing that you love. They wasn't wearing T-shirts that said, I love black. Like, none of that. It's just the way they operated. Like, you could tell it just by the way they carried themselves. Like, they didn't have, you know, even the thugs in our neighborhood, you know, would straighten up when Miss Hutchins was walking back because somehow, you know, they know that she actually believes there's something good about them. And they just, you know, for, for five whole minutes, they would stop being assholes. And, you know, and then, yeah. I mean, when she's out of sight, you can go back to all that
0: back to who they are
1: you know but uh so that obviously left an impression on me because the neighborhood was you know very dangerous and random you know but even then i saw the power of speaking life to people's you know other other side of their you know their aspirations who they who they really are and then of course because they were both sort of love doctrine christians but also naturally spiritual my grandmother was very clear that Spirits move us. Like people are just, you know, different spirits live in you, move through you. And so when you can speak to the spirit in a person, you can direct their actions. And when you, you know, only respond, like when you're being reactive, then, you know, people set your temperatures that you set in theirs.
0: Now, I, you know, I've always really responded to that, or it has pulled me in every time I've heard you just talk about some of those early times in your life and how that shaped you in this thought of like, you know, love and power, love and strength. Mm. And to recognize that, you know, as humans, we're not just one way as Black Mm -mm.
1: people. No.
0: Whatever, right? Whatever you identify as, you're not one thing. That's right. In both love and power. Yeah. That covers a whole lot of ground.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, this piece about not being one thing,
0: I think the thing that actually does piss me off, like I'm
1: just being honest, is I think Black folks have a hard time loving themselves because there's so much there's so many voices telling you either you don't count like either you're invisible or if i see you i'm going to see you in a diseased way a broken way a you know a derogatory way and even you know our parents and our our friends and the folks we grew up with you know they feed into it like some of the some of the most harmful ugliest things that you know i remember hearing about black people i heard from black people you know what i mean <laughs> you know and so when i say it pisses me off it pisses me off because I genuinely love us, man. I, I when you look at our history, and you look at like you know the different African folks taken from all these different places, and the ones who survived the Middle Passage and what it took to do that, and the folks who survived being enslaved and brutalized, and like when you really step back and look at who we actually are, it's fucking amazing. Like, a, I probably should stop cussing on your show, but I'm just saying, like, it's it's amazing. Look, you just got I say no, but I'm saying, like, when you step back and think about a folk who've had this kind of insanity done to them for centuries. And if you just stop beating them for even a a second, like the the minute you stop, you know, brutalizing them, like they just start to stand up straight and they start to love each other and heal each other and heal those around them. We've always done that. We've always done that. Somebody does something bizarre and crazy to attack one of us randomly on the street or, you know, whatever, like there's riots or like some shit jumps off. As soon as the, like that moment passes, we're trying to figure out how to heal everybody. We don't want the, the attacker to be, you know, stigmatized and, you know, treat like, we, there's something about us that wants people to be whole. And I just, I'm amazed by that. I'm, you know, we, we got every excuse in the world to just be evil to the world, but it's not the way we're
0: cut. You know, Uh, one, uh, something that I know that I've experienced with you and and I'll share the story now, but we'll get into this more is how it doesn't matter how many degrees, it doesn't matter how much money is in your bank account. It doesn't matter where, what side of the tracks you are. You can carry this thought that you're not either good enough or you don't measure or mm-hmm. somehow you devalue yourself. And I didn't realize how much I was doing it to myself until one of our encounters. And I shared so this. Bad. Yeah. Right. And I love it. And the reason why I share it, one, is to just be transparent, is that it doesn't matter where you see me. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I don't have my own thoughts that I have to yeah. wrestle through. Yeah. And being in a space where someone just sees you for your greatness, sees you, yeah. and just loves you. Right. Yeah that's one of the reasons why i've appreciated you because that's who you are you just like your like your grandmother there's a way that people just kind of act right because they just feel that love and they see someone seeing them in a greater way yeah and and, you like you said like you know black folks when there's a moment where they're not being beat up or not being criticized experiencing love it comes out and yeah how have you been able to do that? Like, what has allowed you to do that in so many spaces for so many people?
1: Honestly, brother, I think I think it's who we want to be. Like, I'm not even... Because, you know, my wife over time has asked me, like, why do people... Like, I'm the dude that, like, if I get into a cab and I'm driving from, like, the airport to the hotel, on the way, the cab driver will, like, divulge his secrets yes. and, like, tell me I'm about the sure. affairs that he has. I, I, I didn't ask about none of this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, but, but my point is... I just think people want like people want to be safe they want to feel they want to let it off they want to take a chance and be kind to somebody for no reason you know what I mean like so it's not I don't think I have to do that much like I think I have to like the thing is like i like I said, I genuinely love black folks, and honestly because I love black people, I can love other people you know i I get into these circles, yeah you know, I, I go to all these different communities and leadership networks that I'm in. And I remember I was at the Aspen Institute and they were at, you know, they asked us to do a round of introductions and, you know, say. So I stood up and the first thing I said to the group was, I love Black people. I'm Travian. I love Black people. I really have always loved Black people. I think Black folks are dope. And I ran on for about a minute and I said, and I also run this organization. But, you know, I know that probably felt weird to this room full of white folk, but uh, it's just facts. <laughs> and And by the way, nobody felt threatened or intimidated. They dug it too. You know what I mean? Like, So I guess what I'm saying is really appreciating us, you know, means I can appreciate myself. And because I appreciate myself, people feel, I think people feel my confidence. I think they feel, or they feel that I am confident. I think they feel that I don't have any negative judgments. Like I'm not, I'm not looking for a way to get you. Right. So if you want to relax, let's kick it. You know what (laughs) I mean? You know what I mean? Like, and if you don't, you know, I understand no, no, no judgment there either. But honestly, dude, I don't think I do something as much as. I think people want to not be beaten up by every person they encounter. So I just, you know, just don't do it and they show up.
0: And I know that like what you're saying is for you, it just it just flows naturally. Right. It's mm-hmm. just who you are and how you see the world, you know, but you've experienced others. I've experienced others and so many others maybe even listening that that's not always the first type of people or person that we encounter. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. From that's real. Background, that sometimes we feel we have to perform or sometimes oh, yeah. oh yeah, to encounter someone that dude we could just kick it like like you yeah. don't have to do all of that to use our you know a cliche is a breath of fresh air right yeah it's, something is different yeah and so I'm wondering like when people are able to be around you in your orbit and they feel that yeah what does that feel like for you when you see that Yeah, yeah, you
1: just reminded me even though like as an adult I could say, you know, this is the space I'm in, but I grew up in the hood. So you don't you don't run around you know, happy go lucky with everybody you see. That that's not like, you know, when I when I was a kid, you know, I had the 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 expressionless face, right? The you know, a face that like a you know, is generally distressed and irritated, but aside from that, that you can't read nothing else. You know, is he angry? Is he sad? Like Don't you know, mess with him. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Just don't feel like just (laughs) whatever's going on. You don't want to poke them because some shit might do. So, you know, I have uh, I won't call it thug face, but definitely sort of like gas face, you know, know how to do that. Know how to, you know, until probably my junior year in college, man, I could walk through a parking lot and tell you how many people are in their cars like, you know, day or night. Like I might just sort of instantly. So I'm saying that to say I don't mean to sound Pollyannish about it like that. That's not it. In fact, I go the other way and say, because I know, you know, I grew up knowing, you know, dealers and murderers and people who abuse folk and folk like all that was in the neighborhood. I knew all those guys when they were just four or five year old kids, just like me. You know what I mean? I saw the process that turns a child into a monster, you know, again and again, by the way, like not just once, you know, I, I know plenty of brothers who and sisters who had to choose between being victim or predator at some point in their life, you know, like when they were seven, you know, like that make this choice where they're going to keep getting victimized or where they're going to develop a different, you know, spirit. So I'm saying all that to say, I also think part of the acceptance of people comes from, I've seen people doing horrible shit to each other, but I know why, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't, you know, you've been in be Me, you know, for, you know, for fact, B. Me, there are brothers who have taken lives or sisters, you know, who, you know, They've done bad, you know, bad shit. Yeah, But the question is, is that who they are? Because it's not, you know what I mean? Like it's not. And since it's not, I don't want to hold them hostage to something they can never change. You know, that if you just gave them, like you say, gave them a chance, they would exhale and you could see the other side, you know. So so I, your comment just made me reflect that um, part of what makes it easy to do that is I just, I've seen, you know, people in all their different states of um stress, you know, and pain. And one of the things that I I actually used to get, I used to get hot about it. I don't, I don't as much now. I used to get hot, man, when you, you know, you drive through a certain neighborhood and people get all tight and, you know, folks who've never had to live a, a life, you know, have all these judgments for people who are living the life. And I'm like, <laughs> and I remember thinking, and I've said it to people like, I've met middle-class people, folks who never had to worry about hunger or fear or whatever. Like I, I've met y'all. If y'all had to live for one day <laughs> in the communities that these kids and family, you would lose your flipping mind and be way more violent, way more evil, way more. So I know, I know people like they, they're doing what they can to survive and you just don't have an appreciation for how difficult that is when the world is trying to you know tear your soul out, right? And so now finally to answer your question, how I feel when people reflect back. That they feel seen, that they feel validated, recognized, any of those things. I feel like I'm in a community. Like, that's what it is. I feel like, like, if, if I, you know, I am mean, you rock like any, but, you know, when you see somebody and you know they're a good dude and you know this, this is a good sister, and, you, and, and now it's like, well, we are a community of two right now, you know what I mean? And, and when there's three of us, we're a community of three. Like, it's great to be in a community. It's great to belong somewhere and to know that the person, you know, across from you is somebody you can genuinely value, you know? So I feel like, yeah, when that happens, I just feel connected to them.
0: Yeah, you know, I love, you know, just all that you're sharing. And yeah, you know, like, I think part of what I'm also hearing from you is that you've just been able to personally experience multiple parts of life yeah. and also have learned from other people. Like, I feel like I'm one of those people that I don't have to go through it to learn. You know, you know, right?
1: saves the time. Amen. And
0: because of that, like I've learned a lot about life.
1: Yeah,
0: it Sounds like your lens is so wide. That you picked up on your own personal experiences, your grandparents, yeah, people in the hood, people in middle class, wealthy, wealthy folks, yeah, to then be able to say, I get it, I get, I get a part of it at least, right, and share that with other people, yeah, seen, which I think is just powerful because once again, it doesn't always happen that way.
1: No, I think that's fair, and uh, I'm glad you brought up wealthy folk because uh, going from you know the hood to Cranbrook, or you know this this ivy color covered, you know, sort of. Like, literally, my high school was behind cobblestone walls and had, like, you know, a bell tower and there are ivies on the dorm. Like, it was really, like, a, it was very, like, the way you imagine the joint, it, it was like that, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's
0: so, what they modeled it
1: after. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, in fact, since it was in the Detroit area, I remember, I think my sophomore, maybe my junior year in high school, our, our dining hall, like, looks, it looked like the dining hall from, like, Harry Potter. Like, it's high ceilings, the big wooden tables, the whole shit. And literally the, the chairs and stuff from our dining hall were on display at the Detroit Museum of Art, because the guy who designed all of it was his dude named Elio Seren, and he's apparently a famous artist. But the point is, like, it was that kind of like, you know, off planet, you know, experience for a boy from the block. And one of the things I learned there, like really early on, which, you know, totally freaked me out, and I'm sure it had an, a, an impact on how I approached life. I learned that rich kids struggle.
0: Yes, <laughs> they do.
1: Like I was, what? Like, like you know, it was just hard to wrap my head around that they feel, you know. I, I knew kids who felt basically abandoned. They felt alone. They felt they felt inadequate. Right? They had the they had literally the best teachers, like that money could buy. Like literally, like our several of our of our high school instructors had PhDs. Like they were doctors. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. so, but none of that, you know, meant that that they didn't have to deal with stuff. You know what I mean? So that was a surprise. Um, also, to be brutally honest, the other surprise, well, well there's two, two other surprises. I'll save the, the, the brutal one for last. But the second surprise was, I, you know, I used to think that like rich kids had everything handed to them. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, they, they do their thing and then they grow up and they take over mommy and daddy's company. And, you know, like, but after going, after you know, being at Cranbrook, I realized if you go from junior kindergarten all the way through the high school, you know, senior graduation, in one educational community, which is, you can do at Cranbrook, and then you go on to the best schools because you got the pedigree for it, you've literally been training your whole life yes. to run daddy's company or mommy's company. Yes. So in a fair and open competition, you're going to win. Like there's nobody better yes. prepared to do it. You know, I went to-
0: Plus the people comfort. that are around, plus the experiences and exposure in mommy and or daddy's company, all well, of them.
1: I went to school with both Carol and Chris Illich. Who, if you don't know Detroit, the Illichs own Little Caesars and like a third of Detroit. You know what I mean? So I, I went to you know Dan Gilbert owns a third, and the city owns the other third, right? But the point is, um, but I went to school with those guys, and you know, honestly, I, I always thought Carol was like smarter of the, you know, Chris is running the company now. But all, but the point I'm just trying to make is they had been prepared for what they're doing now. There is nobody who could out you know be better at the job than than they are they've been you know they, they've been working at it for a long time right they they understand the family they understand the business they understand money they understand like so i'm saying all that to say. i used to think rich kids have stuff handed to them nah not really you know what i mean like there's nobody better prepped than they are you know so fair enough and then the third thing that you know was a big surprise to me is they're not smarter and i don't mean chris and carol specifically i just mean Wealthy kids are not smarter. That I've been with the guys on the block who can figure out literally how to do almost anything, and I've been with the you know with well educated, well prepared, but not particularly smarter folk. And that was mind blowing. That like that was a game shifter for me because it meant that even though these folk you know have more resources, have been prepared, have been better prepared, they're not better. You know, like that's not what's going on. They they are better resourced, you know, they are better cared for.
0: No, I appreciate like, you know, you highlighted that because, you know, in growing up where, I tell people often, you know, my parents worked hard and I'm grateful for how hard they worked. And, you know, we weren't below the line, but we were not far above the <laughs> line. I didn't, get a, you know, I didn't get free lunch. I probably could have qualified for maybe something.
1: You know what I'm saying? Right, you were bobbing.
0: Right. <laughs> you hit above the right. wall. And, you know, I talk about how, you know, I didn't have Nikes. I had pro wings. When you're in that type of mindset, you can believe that people who don't have to think about those things have everything or don't have worries. But being a therapist and talking to people like, yeah, I have heard their struggles or their worry or the thought of like, oh, I can't talk about my struggles because somebody is worse off. But I'm like, we're not comparing you. That's right. We're comparing you to you right, yeah. and being yeah, able I love that. To that and so you know when you highlight that, I appreciate it because there are people out there who struggle who have wealth, and then the other part that you you know that you highlighted about they're not smarter, right <laughs> Wealth does not make you smarter, race yeah. does not make you smarter, whatever okay. identity does make you smarter, yeah. because there are people who are so gifted, talented yeah. if given the right opportunity, chance, yeah. resource yeah and with their own drive could really do amazing things and we've seen that and so yeah. i think that i can understand once again going back to what we're saying how that adds to how you see people yeah yeah someone who's incarcerated but you see through all of that you see their character yeah. and yeah. believe they can do great things and they've proven you right because they have yeah. done great
1: things yeah without a doubt you know even this piece about folks who get locked up number one, I think people finally accepted that if you're a black male, you don't have to do much to get locked up. So this idea that somehow, you know, they're criminally inclined, eh, you know, check that, you know, sometimes yes, but not always. Right. Then the second thing is, funnily enough, given the way like school systems are pretty terrible to, you know, in some neighborhoods, I think this is going to sound terrible, but I think some of the more intelligent folks are the ones who end up, <laughs> you know, doing criminal stuff because they, they figure out that it's a setup. They figure out the hustle and they're like, well, I'm not I'm not going to play the game. We'll do something different. And obviously that's a web that you know, leads you in, in the wrong places. But I, I, all I'm trying to say is this assumption that just because somebody is locked up now, what tends to happen is they don't like but legit literacy is low. Things The school is supposed to do for you. Weren't done typically. Yeah. But it's not again, it's not saying that the person has some innate deficiency they just literally weren't invested in, literally weren't developed, you know?
0: And being able to separate that, which I think we've, as a country, as a society, we've struggled with separating the factors, right, the different things, right? We know that if you're under-resourced or if you're not, if you don't have the best teachers or even the books that are from this decade, (laughs) you know, it's going to impact, you know, what people can really learn and compete on. But then when you look at their just their talent, their intellect, their drive, their ambition, you recognize that they're amazing.
1: I got to tell you, since we're talking about education, I got to tell you something that probably is controversial, but I just might as well lay it out there. Like, so we have daughters who will be five next month. We haven't put them in school and we probably aren't going to put them in school until we can find one that meets our criteria. But certainly so. but, But here's the thing. Here's why. Right. I've had great education you know private schools public schools like but my daughters are like i said will be 5 i have yet to go to any school in the united states that doesn't absolutely center white kids now i got no problem with white kids but i'm saying if i have a 5 year old daughter who is in the stages you know of identity formation like you know yeah. until 7 she's trying to figure out the very fundamentals of who she is and for every reference to center somebody who is not her yeah. That is psychic displacement. I'm not going to have her, either of them, like both of them, I'm not going to have either of them grow up, you know, starting off with like, I am the friend in somebody else's story. Cause that's the way the black kids show up in the books. You know what I mean? If yeah. they show up at all, you know? So the ironic reason for why I haven't put my kids in school yet is because school teaches them to displace themselves psychically in their lives. I don't want to spend the next 50 years repairing that, you know, that damage. Let's just, Like we literally, we have home, to you know, we, we can afford to do home tutors and and they're all black. <laughs> the materials that we have them teach from are, you know, center black kids and usually black girls. By the way, the black girls have white friends and friends from other countries and other cultures, right? But the black girls at the center of the story, you know, and, and they're learning math and say, whatever, like, you know, they got tutors for different things. But the point I'm trying to make is the education system Will teach you that your story is not about you, and that has—I think—that has real consequences. You know, I trained, and one quick story: I, I was hired by uh, Kaufman Foundation years ago to do an analysis of how their high-performing teachers and educators of color basically view their narrative and the like. One of the interesting findings from that was these teachers—you know—they're different ethnicities and different races, men and women—but these teachers of color did not view the educational system as, you know, sort of ambivalent towards black folks or ambivalent towards people of color. They viewed it as actively hostile, that the education system is actively hostile to our children. And they got involved in the education system to shield, right? To be a buffer, to translate, to make it safer for kids that were black and brown to go to school. So I'm like, well, shit, (laughs) if the people... You know, if the high-performing teachers in the schools are there because they recognize how destructive the school is, then what better indictment do you need that the school system actually is hostile to our children, right? So, so yeah, I'm in, I'm in this place right now, me and my wife, where we're like, right now we can afford to homeschool and do that. And certainly, you know, when they're past the age of seven, we can re- you'll look again at it. But, but, yeah.
0: No, I appreciate, you know, the intentionality. Of that and how important that is right and you know as you're sharing that i I thought about like my own children i think it was my daughter when and she was in school and came back and was sharing like you know the story of like you know goldilocks and (laughs) but what i was impressed by the school was that they did all the different versions they did the african Mm -hmm. version okay some other cultures i'm like (laughs) I'm a full grown adult. I'm like, there's other versions. <laughs> right, right, right. I didn't know there were other versions. There's a African centered version. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and like there, what's the, all I knew was Goldilocks, you know, white girl with, you know, the the bears and all right, that. Stuff. Right.
1: Right. White, so white girl who invaded some homes.
0: And was okay. Right. <laughs> and, but the thought of like one of these stories and I know like the narratives that we are, that are projected onto people or onto identity onto who we are is so profound that does shape us that does oh, yeah. shape us to make us feel less than not good enough yeah and especially when we talk about the intersections of some of our identities when yeah. you talk about being a black girl right like some of those things when you add other yeah. Yeah. identities there's so many messages out there to then yeah. say you're not less you're less than you're not good enough and yeah. And I know narratives and stories are so important to you. So I can understand why you would make such a choice with your daughters yeah. to not have those narratives yeah. infiltrated in their mind about yeah. who they are and who they can be.
1: Yep. Yep. And you've met them. They're super like, uh, just they're happy kids. Like, you know, like, I tell my wife <laughs> that, uh, I'm just amazed by our, our kids, you know, cause like I said, I grew up in the hood. And so now that we're bougie middle-class Negroes, I'm like, these girls have literally no idea. Like my, my brother was in town a couple of days ago and we were just cracking jokes about being hungry, you know, <laughs> earlier, you know, we we're growing up and stuff and we were laughing because we both have kids now and our daughters have no idea, like none. Like they think, you know, like when they, when they, <laughs> when they uh, you know, if it's 30 minutes past, you know, lunchtime or dinner time, they start saying, my belly is hurting. Like it's hurting. Yeah. It's hurting. Hurting, <laughs> like you literally have no, you can't tell the difference between a little hunger pain and actually pain. You know what I mean? You're like, so we love that they have no clue. You know, but my point is, I tell my wife like, I love that. I, I think that's wonderful because I, you and I both know for a fact that plenty of kids, by the time they're five, you can see the wounds in in their eyes. They, yeah. So,
0: like you said, I have made these choices about themselves, about their families, about the world that takes some time to really kind of work through. Yeah. I don't want to fully jump over, you know, Mm. Ignite and all the foundation work that you've done. But that was important, right? Like it, I'm wondering how did that shape the work that you're doing now? How would you say- You're doing my foundation land or- Foundation world.
1: Yeah, so, all right, so I, you know, Negro tech nerd from the hood, grows, a you know, little boy tech nerd from the hood grows up, went to Michigan State, go Spartans, you know, <laughs> yes. I, uh, I um, you know, I graduate and went to work for the Detroit News because I was interested in journalism at the time, did a very short tour there and got into tech, which is also my interest, right? So I do the tech company. It does well, actually. And then I get into, you know, I get out of tech and I get into trying to do philanthropic things, right? I, I've officially retired from tech at 29 or you know, you know how it works, right? So I'm out of that and Now I want to do something, you know, good with myself. And so I started I yeah, I worked at Ashoka for a while, I then went from Ashoka to the Knight Foundation. And so the interesting thing about Knight Foundation is it's led by this guy named Alberto Abarguin who I love, like, you know, it's funny to say that cuz he's such a like He's a sort of a tough dude, you know what I mean? Like his persona is not cuddly. Let's say, let's do it that way. Like he's not a cuddly cat in philanthropy land. Like he's a very like logic, you know, sort of rational, reason driven, but also intuitive person. And he has no problem using profanity to express his uh, his displeasure or his pleasure with his colleagues, right? Or at least not when I worked with him. So anyway, but the point is, I uh, went to work at Knight Foundation really because of this dude. Like I, I could see that he wanted innovation. He wanted Big impact. He wanted, you know, thinking outside the box, you know, different from what foundations normally do. And he was willing to let Trabian be Trabian. So, <laughs> <laughs> so off we went. You know what I mean? Anyway, so that was my experience in Philanthropy Land. I was vice president of the foundation's community work. I had always, you know, since I was 14 years old, the question of what does it take to change culture has been one I've worked on. Like, even the tech company was looking at. How to affect culture around the use of technology? When I went to Ashoka, it was looking at all these networks of leaders and figuring out you know how they affect culture. Then I go to Knight Foundation. I'm in charge of the community, so now I'm looking at cities and how to build networks you know in cities. And so yeah, studying there, practicing, <laughs> experimenting. I figured out how we might change culture you know with Black folk. I remember Alberto gave a challenge to the uh, our vice presidents. You know we. Knight's mission was focused on how to have transformational impact in local communities, right, as well as in media and journalism. And the foundation focused specifically on community engagement and information. Those were the, And so the data said that Black men were negatively engaged, disengaged, hard to engage, right? And so he asked the VPs, you know, what can we do to affect Black male engagement? B-M-E, right? <laughs> and, you know, and I raised my hand and said, I I know some black folks. I'd love the project. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, so, so we do some work looking at how to increase graduation rates, how to, you know, increase employment rates, all that kind of stuff. Do that for a year. We find programs that double the graduation rates. We find programs that, you know, get more kids to, you know, go to college, get more people employed. And at the end of the year, when I'm doing my review with them in the office, I was like, okay, I mean, yeah, these are, you know, We found incremental impacts. There's really nothing transformative here. Like it works, like but I don't. There's nothing that's going to change the game here. And he said, "Well, what would you do to change the game?" And I said, "Well, honestly, the issue is you and I both know brothers who do more than their fair share all the time. Like uplift their communities. You know, always looking out for other folk. But right now, philanthropy acts as if they don't exist. Like we never, we don't even tell their stories. All we do is tell the bad, you know, the negative story. And I said, you know, what if Instead of trying to figure out how to fix all these individual circumstances, we just told the true stories about all these folks who are building in their communities, and you know, leaned our ladder up against a different narrative. And he was like, "What well, you know? What is that supposed to accomplish?" I said, "Well, I'm not entirely sure, but I, I it's got to be better than what we're doing." And so we had you know, we had a quick conversation, and then he gave me a, a budget to experiment, right? And so we did. And a couple of years later, actually, not even a couple, a year later, <laughs> I'm saying to him. results are dope i love what we're seeing i want to do this full time (laughs) thank you for you know time at night foundation he said oh all right suspected it would go this way (laughs) we got to build you out of the foundation right so let's do another round of this project and at the end of it you know we'll spin you up and that that's how it happened so
0: and you know what i appreciate among many things is how you know i feel like each thing led to the next right your exploration From the beginning probably from your grandparents about culture about community about black folks right to the tech company to ashoka to knight foundation like this through line of like who you are and your character and what you wanted to do and then here's this opportunity to do it and then go and you do it and you're like yeah this is what i've been searching for (laughs) all right i'm out yeah and in that right i know that created be me Yeah, yeah
1: totally
0: And that allowed you to then take so much of what you've been doing and kind of push it forward. Yeah. And so how would you describe Beat Me? I know I have my Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'll set it, I'll fasten it by connecting the dots. So like I said, 14-year-old Trabian experiencing, you know, gang violence, crack all of a sudden being a thing, the decline of our economy, the shutting down of the factories, you know, the ghetto-fying of my neighborhood, right? I experienced that. And at the same time that's going on, I'm seeing in the news and on TV the reporting about how it is the black boys these teenage black boys that are the problem that are destroying the community and I'm like I'm a teenage black boy I'm trying to figure out how to survive in all these changes and literally the public is blaming me for the condition of my neighborhood like when did children get to be in charge of the condition of, of the community like it was you know it irked me even at that age okay and so the question that my little nerd brain locked on to is it seems like those who aren't from the hood don't understand the hood. So nobody, so they can't solve it. So it's gonna take one of us to figure out how to evolve the culture. And I said, look, I've seen so many kids die for no damn reason. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna spend my life trying to figure this out, right? And so all the other things were me trying to figure out one question. Like I, w- the reason it seems to all flow together is because I would literally chase jobs and opportunities based on whether I thought it could help me understand the next part, which is funny, but just real quick. So my career art confuses people, right? Because I was a tech guy and blah, blah, blah. Like, but, but even before doing that, for instance, I graduate college. I go to work at the Center on Philanthropy for a little while, studying philanthropy, American traditions of philanthropy, as well as, you know, doing research for the center. And at one point I get uh, offered a master's fellowship full ride. Right. To get my master's degree. And I turned it down.
0: If you don't say that. <laughs>
1: because I wanted to move to DC to continue to advance this mission that I had in my mind, right? Because in that year, Clinton had been elected. I and some other folks had helped AmeriCorps to become a law. And so I had learned in the process that all these national organizations exist in DC. So I was like, I'm trying to organize a national movement. I can move to a national city and just, you know. Right. Right. So that made sense to me at 26 or whatever age I was. And so, so the point is, so when they offered me this fellowship, this Masters fellowship, I'm like, well, that's not on the path. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I turned There's it. Down, so I, yeah, so I turned it down because in my mind, I was gonna move to D.C. and work at an organization whose job it was to like bring about the next generation of civil rights leaders. That's how I was thinking about it back then, right? So I moved to D.C. I worked for Public Allies, helped them get set up and you know start their first several offices and all that. That that their mission is not about creating the next generation of civil rights, but you know. But within six months of moving there, I end up leaving Public Allies, going to work at the National Urban Coalition. The National Urban Coalition is running a fellowship program whose purpose is to develop the next generation of civil rights leaders. And I I go to work there for, I think a month or two and my boss quits. I get promoted to running the fellowship program. And within six months of moving, I'm doing exactly what I moved there to do, (laughs) right? And so the point I'm trying to make that quick caveat Is the reason why the story seems to all fit together is because it does all fit together. Like, I had a conviction on my spirit at a transition, you know, an important point in my life. Everything since then has been about following what I honestly feel like God has called me to do. Like, I, you know, so as long as I follow the pieces, appear, you know what I mean? And so I go to work at Knight Foundation. I've always had this idea about how do we change the culture. And then, bang, 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 next thing you know, I'm running, be me. And that was a very long way of saying what Be Me is. So now...
0: <laughs> I love the art. Uh, but wait, finish.
1: Yeah, so Be Me community, there's a couple ways to think about it. Probably the simplest way is Be Me is Black leaders building upon Black love to make a better society for everyone. You know, that, That's sort of the like if I were to turn it into a, a catchphrase, that's it. Like, But what we do is Be Me is all about identifying Black brothers, sisters, like folks of all genders, Black folks of all genders, identifying folk who show up a certain way in their community. They care about other people. Folks trust them because they show up, because they're reliable. They're the ones that you can actually count on, right? And we find this certain psychographic, because it is a psychographic. It's not just a, a like title or job position. There's a, certain psych, there's a certain mentality for whom, if they are not doing things to benefit their tribe, they can't feel good about themselves. You know what I mean? <laughs> and... You know, you work in psychology, so you know there are people who can feel fine about themselves without giving back to anybody. Right. So. so, But there's also a temperament for whom what they do to benefit the tribe is part of their structure for self worth. Right. So those are the people you want. Like we build community based off of that personality type because that personality type, when they experience, you know, a boon, they make sure the boon is shared. right? And that personality type is used to carrying more than their fair share of respons- responsibility. They're used to being burdened. So that means they're also used to feeling isolated. Mm-hmm. They're used to feeling pressured, right? So BME takes the personality type that is most likely to benefit society, gives them a place where they're no longer isolated. They're no longer you know, pressured. They can be appreciated, they can be loved. We will remind them to take care of themselves. We will do things to encourage them to be good to themselves and each other. So their natural proclivity to be a benefit to society is now actually being supported. Yeah. You know what I mean? Here's a place where we don't shit on each other. We don't. Like one of the things I love about Be Me, and you, you're part of the fam, you know, one of the things I love about Be Me is I, I hear folks in the community say all the time, oh, when I find out somebody was a Be Me brother, so I'm like, yeah, the answer is yes. Like, oh, are oh, you part of the clique? Oh, right. I know I know what kind of person you are. I will help you. You know what I mean? Like, so I love that all those sort of messages that Black folks are taught to tell other Black folks about crabs in the barrel, that like we don't do this, never do business with your family, you know, all that. And be me, it's like, oh, you wanted to click? We good. What, what you need, you know what I mean? Like, it's not a... So I love that, right?
0: Uh, and I love it, you know, all of that. I love how you've been driven mm-hmm. for a long time, understanding, you know, even what you've mentioned, your purpose, your calling, what you're supposed to be doing, and how you've made intentional moves or been led to these moves along the way to be where you are and to have created be me. And as a part of be me, right, like it's been amazing for me. And I've loved the people, the experience, right? My wife is in it, right? Like it's you like, know? come on, like like you said, like as you sprinkle a little bit on me, it's, we're gonna go, right? So and I've appreciated that, you know, something I've shared with you that you know, I'll share with others is that there are a few places in my life that I've established as home. That allowed me to grow even more. Yeah. And some of those places, you know, it's interesting, right? One of those places is Villanova, right? Mm-hmm. I love Villanova. I went there mm-hmm. undergrad, predominantly white institution, mm-hmm. but some mm-hmm. great, amazing people that are there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then the other place has been Be Me, right? Like all black, black people from all different backgrounds, all across the country, even some parts of the world. Yeah. But a place that has allowed me to grow and to flourish or to try out some stuff. Exactly. Right? And to then be of impact, and so that's part of it. Is like not only have I benefited, but I've also been able to benefit other people, which goes back to like what you say, the psychographic, right? The thought of like these are people who want to do good for others, and yeah. if they also get to flourish, it's a win-win-win. There you go. And that that so is a theory. I love it, and uh, you know what you've been able to do. I want to be able to add. There's a few questions I like to ask before we end, but I sure. would love for you to even highlight asset framing and i know it's a you can't it's a long <laughs> description but yeah. i'm really curious about how you got there yeah especially in the connection with the work that you're doing with, with black folks and people outside yeah. of
1: that. yeah so asset framing is a cognitive framework that is sort of sweeping the social impact field you know lots of like major companies as well as foundations are really learning how to apply it but here's where it can, comes from. So I've always wanted to figure out how to free Black folks from this sort of just oppressive culture, stigmatizing culture. And legitimately, I think a lot more about how Black people think of Black people. I don't really worry about how White people think of Black people. Like it's not that's a that's a secondary sort of incidental thing. So BME doesn't exist to an asset framing is not about getting other people. <laughs> it's about getting Black folks. You know, as I always like to say in the click like. It's never about what people call you. It is always about what you answer to. So you have to have a clear sense of who you are so that you know which stuff matters and which stuff doesn't, right? So I'm very. So when I think about asset framing, the way I got there is I'm, you know, I'm on this mission. I'm trying to figure out how to shift culture. I learned that human beings are very narrative driven from Daniel Kahneman and Tversky and other uh, cognitive research psychologists. And so with that insight, I'm like, huh, okay. So if we're narrative driven, And the narratives around Black folks are pretty universally negative, that it's actually not people's fault that they have Mm -hmm. these autonomic, automatic negative impulses. Mm -hmm. It's literally not their fault. And I'm not trying to let racists off the hook. (laughs) Right. But at the same time, human beings are pattern making and pattern following machines. It is autonomic for us. And so if that's all that people know, then that's all they can do is reference that in their recall, Right. And so asset framing is very simple right it says rather than define any people by their challenges or faults or shortcomings or any of that stuff rather than define them that way define them first by their aspirations and contributions and then after that you can talk about whatever shortcomings you want to but what that does for your mind in terms of how your mind builds associations it literally associates aspirations and contributions with that same person yeah. that it would not have before right and so if you say, I was, you know, I was just on, the, on a call earlier today with the folks at donor Shoes, right? So if you say, you know, little Susie is a curious student who wants to learn about science in her failing school system where she is on free and reduced lunch, right? You can, if you say that story, you have asset framed the child. She aspires to learn. She aspires to do well in science. Like she has aspirations. She makes contributions. And you still talk about all the things that are jacked up. Yeah. But what you haven't done is implied in any way that she is responsible for the condition of her school or the condition of her community. But when we come, when we say little Susie is an at-risk youth in a low-income neighborhood, then people actually feel like something, she actually has something to do with her being at risk. You know what I mean? Like, so again, when we leave out the aspirations and contributions, we literally stigmatize people. And our minds have an a, We all have a physiological natural aversion to anything that carries stigma. And in the training, you know, I use examples of rats and roaches and spiders. You're like, we, we have an instant response. They don't have to do anything threatening. We just behave. We, you know, when the spider shows up, it's a problem. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so... So similarly, anything that carries stigma, you're going to have that physiological instant response to, right? Whether it's a rat or a roach or an inner city youth, right? A poor person, a homeless person, anything that carries stigma, you're going to automatically do that. So you can train your mind not to do that by not stigmatizing them in the first place. That's it. It's a simple skill, but it opens up an aperture. Like literally people or our clients, you know, report to us that they see more options. Like they, they see whole solutions they did not see before you know
0: so i'm like I mean, yeah that, you know it's so powerful and with what you've said with your trajectory it makes sense right even when you talk about at 14 being able to think about you know being seen as that at-risk youth right when you're like i didn't do anything i'm trying to survive like anybody else yeah and how to shape the environment and world for so many people not just black people that's right to see more options, to see more solutions. And I know that you've gone, you know, literally across the world yep. really deep in and helping people to think about asset framing and how to apply that in their different, you know, worlds and businesses. Yes. So I'm curious for you, these, you know, last few questions I like to ask. Mm-hmm. Who would you want to work with or collab with hmm. in the mission and vision and the things that you're doing that maybe you haven't already?
1: Wow. That's yeah. That's not a question I haven't thought of. You know, I recently had a chance to hang out with John Powell for a little bit. That brother's deep, and uh, I definitely want to get to know him. Like he's just—he's a smooth cat, but he's also like, you know, still water's very, very intelligent, very spiritually intelligent. So I, I love the opportunity to get to know him better. I, I recently met Desmond and Sheena Mead. What a dope couple! You know what I mean? Like Desmond is just the real deal, and Sheena is. Built, like D-O, Dope, like d o capital d o p e like i think everybody should meet so in a way like i'm naming people i already you know get to work <laughs> right, that's
0: fine it sounds like maybe deeper with some of those folks but um but who would else honestly
1: i don't have a, a person-centered answer for that what i would say is i am a person of faith I, i've been faith-led so what i joke about that i know i'm not allowed to tell funders <laughs> so i'm just gonna put it on put it on record and just but, uh, <laughs> Anyway, what I joke about is when people ask me about Be Me strategy, Be Me strategy is go that way. I was called to do a thing, and the thing is in that direction. So I'm always going in that direction. And what has happened throughout my life is be faithful to the calling and the resources show up, the people show up, the insights show up. You know, there's no way. I couldn't have predicted meeting George James. I, can't, I couldn't have written a plan, a strategic plan that says, oh, yeah. You know, (laughs) this certain year, this certain day, I'm going to meet George like that. I can't, but I can go that way, and you know, the people who need to be in my path find me, you know, or I find them. And so, so I I don't know who I need to meet. Actually, I just know I'm going to keep going that way. I'm going to keep building from love. Like when I think about power, you have to build love and power simultaneously. So I'm going to keep building love and power. I'm going to love black people. I'm going to love all people. I'm going to try to show folks that we actually can have a society that values all members of the human family. It actually works. It works better than the habit that we have and the reflex that we have. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep sort of walking that path, and those who want to believe it and those who want to be on the same path, you know, they show up.
0: I love it, and you know, that's a way that I live my life. Same thing. I would have known I would have, you know, <laughs> ran into Travian and like yeah. we would have been so impactful in the things that I do and even my life and my family. But hey, I want to go that way too. And you there you know, go. Yeah, that's the last thing I heard is go forward. So I'm like, all right, I'm that's. What <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, you know, and the funny thing about that, like it's hard. Like, I don't usually, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't lead off stuff with I'm a Christian or whatever. But what I find interesting is a lot of like, if you're younger, a lot of people think that like if you have a calling or whatever, like you go that way and it's supposed to work out, it's supposed to be like yeah. essentially smooth sailing. And I'm like, no, nah, actually, no, like <laughs> there's plenty of valleys, like, like anything, there's plenty of like setbacks. And, you know, and the, the, even, you know, I haven't shared a ton in my story, but there are, you know, there were. And I guess what I'm trying to underscore is being faithful to your calling doesn't at all mean that it'll be easy, doesn't at all mean that you won't be injured, that you won't be sad, you won't be broken at some like all that stuff might come with the journey, right? But what I found is if you're faithful, then literally every experience you have gives you compassion. You can understand someone who's been broken, you can understand someone who's lost hope. You can understand someone because you've been there. You know, I mean you don't have to pretend it, you know. So like as the saying goes that all things work for good, I do believe that when you you know you stick to your calling, it doesn't guarantee anything in life except that you will always achieve high insight. Like you'll always everything will help you be a better person because you've been faithful to to that calling.
0: Uh I mean, I love that and I try to live by that. And I've seen that because you know, I believe life comes with a fair share of challenges. And that are unique and personal, but if you're able to see it as part of you going that way, you can make sense of it. Or it starts yeah. to make sense. two yeah. questions that I like to ask: One, what does mental wellness mean to you? Yeah.
1: Well, you know that for years I avoided trying to see a shrink. Like I was like, you know, because um, and I think in part because I was used to carrying so much that I thought that what if the psychologist uncovers something that. I can't handle it. I need to like just shut down for a month. Like I can't, I can't drop, I can't drop all these balls. I'm juggling like too many people depend on me to stay, whatever. So honestly, George, you being in my life is why I started talking to psychiatrists. Like, you know, just so again, couldn't have predicted that couldn't have known it would go that way.
0: I appreciate Um, it.
1: But, but the point is, you know, it didn't break me. It's actually a good thing. So ah. You know what I mean? So to me mental wellness is recognizing that you matter. You matter enough to take care of you. You know, what I mean, like many of us sacrifice to take care of others, but it's like a well attitude to have is yes, help others, but, you know, fasten your own oxygen mask first, right? Like they, like they tell you, if you really want to be good at that, right? Take care of yourself. So even if your orientation is to take care of others, you have to take care of yourself to do that well, you know? So that's wellness to me, like valuing yourself enough to take care of yourself.
0: And I appreciate you sharing that. And once again, right, you know, how being in a, in a opportunity to not only know you and others to just show up as my authentic self. And then in doing that, how that impacts other people. Yeah. That
1: well, you're like, a super relatable cat, man. Like I think, no, but like I don't, I mean, I, I think you know this, but I'm just going to say it. Like when we're in the circle, you know, in the brother circle, and I think at the time you might've been the only psychologist in the, in the network. Yeah. So at the time, all these black men, and we're used to like, you know, it's, it's a fort. You ain't going to get us to, we're not going to say love because something about it will crack my face. You know what I mean? Like, so, so you, you know, you got all these guys who are tight, but you're so cool. Like, you're so chill that people are like, huh. Well, I mean, I mean it's literally. Like, folks were like, what? if the psychiatrist is like George, well, that's different. Like, I, I ain't, I ain't, I'm, I'm, I'm being dead. So I'm being honest with you. Like, who you are made it easier for people to think that this is it's not a sign of weakness, that it's actually a healthy thing to do. You know, and, and once you hear one brother started talking to a psychologist and then that's like that dude, that guy's like, oh, OK, well, if he's seeing a shrink, you know, I, I ain't no softer because I'm seeing one. You know what I mean? Like,
0: that, yeah, means, I, I, that means a lot, too, because, you know, I've learned more and more. That is part of my mission. That is part of my me going forward is recognizing that because I show up and because I show up in certain ways yeah. and it diffuses, whether that be on TV, on the podcast or in the closing circle, it says people like it's okay to share engineer. your thoughts and emotions and talk to someone about it, yeah to me, then that means I'm doing what I'm supposed to, yeah, I appreciate you saying that, and the made last difference question of my life say it again
1: it says' made a difference in my life, man straight uh,
0: up oh well, thank you, yeah. And same here, you know, like I know that I walk in with my head straight and my chest out more because of those experiences that we've had, conversations we've had. And to me, it's like, oh, I don't know what y'all about to get now. If I'm walking in with some confidence, (laughs) about that something, and I'm built and made to do something powerful, so I I I value that so much. And you know, even how it's you know inspired, you know, the talk and more than the talk. Now I give myself permission uh, because I I had to do that for myself and really others to do that. I love that. My last question is what mental wellness advice would you give to your younger self? And that could be as early as yesterday, mm. anywhere in the past. Hmm. That's
1: fun. Also plug for, I give myself permission. It's dope. And I think George's first time might've been with B-Me. So it's like it, it's was, a, it's it was like, it
0: was B-Me that once again, home where it was crafted, developed. And then when I came back with it, it was even, it was 10X from the first time.
1: It was dope. Mental wellness advice I'd give my earlier self actually was to forgive yourself. Like I would have told myself to forgive. So, I mean, I'm sure other people have had it, but like when you're from a place that collapses and, and there's so much suffering and pain, but you actually get out survivors, guilt is a real thing. You know, I, I got friends who die, like people die, like, you know, what I mean they never had a chance to live really. And so then you get out of the hood and you're in this weird space. That's called normal society. You know what I mean? And it's, People have reactions that are not, like they're not immediately. Dif- you know, everything is not. You know, when when I was in Pontiac, I you know, I tell people like in Pontiac, the diff- my hometown, mm-hmm. the difference between a disagreement and a fist fight was about three seconds. You know, what I mean, like there's not a not a lot of rational. You know, what I mean, like you know, what I mean, like what? You know, and then like ah oh, shit, here we go. Right. You know? so, <laughs> yeah. so so my point is, when I got out of that, I felt guilty. I felt like. People have died and here I am, you know, and even like there was a point where even my sense of calling, I think, was tied to guilt. It was a sense of like, you know, you alive. So you got to do something for all those folk who died. You know what I mean? And I remember I did not expect to live to be thirty nine, certainly not 40, because all my heroes yeah. who have fought on behalf of black wellness, yeah. they get sniped. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was like, OK, well. I'm gonna do what I gotta do, and they're gonna cut me down before I'm 40. I, hey, let's go. You know? Yeah. But it was actually a point, right? Well, let's see, how old was I? I was still in my 30s. I hadn't gotten to the mark yet. But there was a point where I realized that it's not about that at all. It's not about about doing penance for living. You know what I mean? <laughs> that it's about like literally trying to build upon your love. Like the the anger, because you know, I was mad about the injustice. I, I'd seen good people done horribly wrong you know what i mean not just once you know so a lot of anger when i was in college <laughs> like I, I, I was a curious kid cuz i'm a, a bookworm so a nerd but don't fuck with me like there's going you're going to discover something <laughs> you know what i mean so so my point is uh, yeah i had a lot of like you know anger as a consequence of that i had a lot of like just like deep frustration as a result of that what i learned is that stuff only take you so far yeah. you know after a while you'll burn out right the only spirit that truly is generative is love. Like the the more you practice it, the stronger you get, the The easier it is to practice it, the easier it is to spread it. But I actually think if I could have convinced myself earlier that I don't have to feel guilty for surviving the hood, you know, then who knows? Maybe my trajectory would have been even steeper. You know, I don't know.
0: And, you know, I appreciate you sharing that because. You know, survivor's guilt, I've actually been talking about this recently, even in my own life, right? Like people that I grew up with where it seemed like they had success earlier and I'm still in school and then more (laughs) school. And then I'm like taking the bus and train and they got new cars. Mm -hmm. But to see how over time it's not the case and then to see how they struggle is the survivors, right? Remorse and guilt. And so but at the same time, we got to live right And We got to keep doing what we do. And I appreciate how You've done that, how you've continued to go that way, <laughs> yep, yep. and impact so many people's lives, including mine and i am excited about what is yet to come you know for you for asset framing yeah. uh, for be me for yeah all that that you're doing for your daughters you yeah. know that that's so I really appreciate you you joining me and before we end, is there any you know last words or things that you want to say before we
1: First of all, man, honored to be on the show. You got to let me know as soon as the clip comes out so I can, you know, spread it. The uh, the other thing is from 2023 on, Be me is committing to a pretty radical concept. In the social impact world that I've been a part of for a couple of decades now, we're going to actively campaign to destigmatize Blackness, right? Like this idea that just because you're Black, all these sort of negative associations come in and you got leaders. So people who run foundations, corporations, large nonprofits who still stigmatize Black folks as their main way of engaging, right? They're, all their stories are about the poor downtrodden Negro and they tell you about who's the poorest and who's had the worst this and who had the worst That's the only way they teach society to think about us. So we're going try to try to try de-weaponize nonprofit land against Black folk. Like, and, and my theory is, if we can do this for our folk, they'll learn how to do it for all folk. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I don't start with the all, right, is because Black lives matter. Like, you got to be able to say Black lives matter. Then you can say all lives matter too. But if you're going to substitute us, like you, we're going to introduce you to a concept and you're going to throw us under the bus rather than, you know, include us, that ain't going to work. So in my thought, if we can get folks to recognize that we want to define Black people by their aspirations and contributions, it'll be easy to define all people by their aspirations and contributions. So we're going to take it on. We're going to take it head on because too many great black folks are getting underfunded, right? They have to over-explain and over-justify their qualifications, right? Because the sector that says it's about helping people still practices stigmatization. So we're going to, we're going to take it on.
0: I love it. And, you know, just, once again just pushing forward right and that as you push forward there's so many people that are either equipped or healed or energized or mobilized or just say i'm down as a result of that and it just keeps building upon each other of course like yeah you, you lose one here or there yeah and more come on and so yeah, like that's right. i love that i love all that you've been doing i love the way that you show up for the community for For me, for your family, for your girls, for your wife, for your son, for, you know, the way that you show up. So I appreciate you you taking the time to join me today. Oh,
1: man, like I said, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Wow. What an incredible ride we just went on with another great member of the LeapCast community. I appreciate you listening and hope you got some tangible value from the episode. Please let us know what you think by leaving a comment, rating and review. As always, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Dr. George James, and I'll see you next time.